Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi, everyone. This week, we are delighted to have retired General Nick Carter joining us on The Value Perspective. Nick served as the Chief of the Defense Staff from 2018 to 2021, which was the culmination of an illustrious military career spanning over four decades, including commanding 55,000 NATO troops during the Afghan surge, and in his last tour, led the transition process with former President Ghani as the Deputy Commander of the NATO mission. He is now a Senior Advisor at Schroeder's. Andrew Williams and Juan were looking forward to this discussion with Nick as a continuation of conversations we've had with other former military figures on the podcast. In this episode, they discuss decision-making in the throes of military action, how to process mistakes, both past and potential, what gambling means in decision-making, especially in the context of war, and finally, his thoughts concerning the current geopolitical landscape, especially in Eastern Europe. Enjoy. General Nick Carter, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Very well, thank you. It's a great uh, privilege to be with you. General, could you please provide our listeners with a brief introduction about uh, yourself? Yes, Nick Carter. I've been with Schroeder's now since November last year. A year prior to that, I finished as the UK's Chief of Defence Staff, or the advisor to the Prime Minister on military matters, but also the leader of our armed forces. And the answer is that um, I'm starting afresh, and I've thoroughly enjoyed the experience so far, and particularly the Schroeder's part of it. This podcast is all about decision-making in uncertain environments. I'm going to start with quite a, a broad question, just starting about how decision-making is processed in the military um, and how, I guess from a uh, very high level, how, uh, how, how the military tackle making, making difficult decisions. Yes, I mean, I think one has to recognise that it's, it's different at different levels. I think the same principles apply at every level, but the level of granularity adjusts as you go from the tactical to what we call the strategic level. I think the basis of it, though, are what I would call the planning interrogatives, which are relatively straightforward. There are three of them. <clears throat> the first one is you ask yourself the question, what have I got to do? Uh, the second question is, how am I going to do it? And the third question, which is fundamental in any environment, is how am I going to command and control it? Now, you'll find at the tactical level <clears throat> that those three planning inter interrogatives get expanded uh, to cover a, a range of different factors. And then, of course, at the strategic level, the factors are probably even broader. Um, and although that framework gets expanded, ultimately, it's a framework that gets populated with the relevant factors. So I think what we try and encourage people to do when they've got time to do this 
is to be very systematic in terms of making sure that they look at all of the relevant factors to what they're trying to achieve. Now, of course, that becomes harder the more urgent the decision is required. But again, it's still the same procedure. It still requires you to be systematic in your thinking. You just may have to be more rapid in your thinking, and you may have to take a bit of a punt on some of the factors that are going to inform that decision-making. I think the other point about decision-making in the military, and certainly, is it's really important to know when you've got to make a decision by. And on a battlefield, that's particularly important. So often on a battlefield, it'll be about when you commit your reserve to the battle or whatever else it might be. There'll be two or three quite big decisions that you will have to take. Key thing is, first of all, to know when you've got to make that decision by, no later than, and what are the factors that affect the influence of that decision. And then the other one is working out where you should best be to make the decision, because not always will you be in the right place. And that means that the information not be, may not be available to you in a timely fashion. So working out when you've got to make a decision and then where you've got to be to make it is a really important um, set of issues that you need to wrestle with, certainly on battlefields. General, we've had other people from the military in the podcast before. Uh, Sir Graham, Air Marshal Sir, Sir Graham Stacy was uh, here almost four years ago and a former captain, Marshal Elliot. And the captain was explaining to us that there was a framework, which I don't know is still in use in the military, about the seven red questions. So I was wondering if that's still the case, if that's one of the frameworks that you expand into uh, after you have approached the three items that you mentioned before. And how do you think about best evolving a framework that has been put in place for many years? I think um, the seven questions, I'm not sure where the, word, the red bit came from, but the seven, the seven questions are a technique uh, that are applied at the tactical level. Um, so as you as I was explaining earlier, between the tactical and strategic level, the framework will probably change um, because you will be asking yourself slightly different questions to inform the process. But the seven questions are still relevant and are still applied at the at the lower level, at the tactical level. And of course, they're applied to what we call a combat estimate. And we use the word estimate because it's the process of analysis you do in order to get to a decision or a plan, perhaps more importantly. And the seven questions are still entirely pertinent when it comes to what you do at the tactical level. It's just, I think, that as one moves further up the levels of command towards the strategic level, uh, one's analysis becomes perhaps informed by other questions. And the process about how do you uh, approach the uh, or evolve all of these frameworks over time? So I guess this has been put in place for many years, but they have been evolving as times and conflicts have been changing. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, but but I go back to my planning interrogatives. You're essentially talking about three big questions. <clears throat> and when you talk about um, that first planning interrogative, which is, what have I got to do? That is a really important first question. Because we believe in the military, as I think probably do a lot of successful businesses, in the idea of empowerment. In the military, and in the British military particularly, we call that sense of empowerment something called mission command. And what mission command tries to do is to decentralize command as far as possible. Because if you're on a battlefield, a a battlefield, as people, I guess, are probably learning from what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, is an incredibly dynamic environment, which is full of friction. It's brutal. It's violent. It's visceral. And decision-making, let alone the acquisition of information, becomes phenomenally difficult. 
Now, if you have an overly centralized system, that is compounded. So what we want to try and do is to delegate down to a much lower level within our organizations and structures so that people who are delegated to can seize fleeting opportunities based upon what becomes available in terms of information at their level. Now, if they're forever having to revert to a centralized hierarchy way above them, by the time they've got a decision, it'll be too late and the enemy will have prevailed. And interestingly, we see that very much in playing out in Ukraine at the moment, where the Russians traditionally have had a very centralized system of command. And of course, what we're seeing with the Ukrainians, given their Western training, is that they no longer apply Soviet principles to the way that they exercise command and control on the battlefield. They're happy to decentralize. Now, decentralizing will only work if certain things are put in place. The first one, which is that you must understand the bigger picture, the context in which you are going to act. Because if you don't, you won't know what the parameters are when you try and seize an opportunity. Now, of course, that's a two-way process. So if you are a leader who is seeking to empower people, the first thing you need to do fundamentally is you need to know those you're leading. Because not everybody uh, will be suitable to be empowered. Uh, and people who are not empowered, who you can't empower, you have to work on the basis of training and educating them to make it possible for them, therefore, to receive empowerment. Some people you'll never be able to do that with, and you have to rely on obedience to orders. But in general, if you know people well enough, you should be able to get the right balance between how much empowerment you can offer one individual and perhaps how much you don't offer another. The second thing you have to do then is to make sure that the individual empowering, as I was explaining, really understands the bigger picture. Then you have a responsibility as a leader to make sure that they understand the freedoms and constraints that apply to the task you're giving them. Um, then essentially you're in a position perhaps to allow them to seize an opportunity. Now, so what we do when we express a task on a battlefield to a subordinate, if we wish to empower them, is we give them the task and a purpose. And it's the purpose that explains the bigger picture. And their part in that bigger picture is the task. So if they see an opportunity, having concluded their task, to be able to realize some of the purpose, then they will go on and do that. And that's classically how we enable decision-making at low levels in chaotic environments. Now, I think that is very relevant to uh, the world of asset management at the moment. You know, the global strategic context, you might want to come back to this, I think has never been more dynamic and complex and unstable in our lifetime. Indeed, I think you have to go back to the 1930s to see when it was like this. And the effect of that geopolitical instability on markets is striking. And therefore, if one is going to prevail in this environment, then the ability to be able to empower to seize opportunities is probably going to be decisive. We just hosted Simon Sebag Montefiore. Actually, the episode came live this morning. And he was saying that the state of the world has just gone back to what it was pre-World War II, where there's uncertainty around many different conflicts, just like human beings going back to how things were before, that, that period of the, the world after World War II being a little bit of a mirage. It's something that that sense of P 
peace and stability is not very akin to human history. Would you agree with that? I would actually. I think that the period that followed World War II, so from 1945 to, let's say, 1990-91, was a period of unprecedented global stability. And that was, of course, because the world was divided into two blocks. It was a bipolar world. And both plot blocks eventually came to an understanding of where each other's red lines were, where each other's freedom of movement was, if you like. And the upshot of that, I think, was that we had an unprecedented period of stability, underpinned to a degree, of course, by nuclear deterrence and the notion of nuclear mutually assured destruction. And I think, you know, historians will look back on that period as a period of unprecedented stability, because having now, from the end of the Cold War onwards, gravitated through a period of a unipolar world where the United States was all-powerful. We are now, I think, increasingly in a multipolar world where great powers and their either allies or clients are competing for opportunity. And that leads into the point I was making a moment ago about inherent instability. And I think you probably have to go back to the 1930s uh, when that was last the case in global terms, where you saw Russia, you saw Germany, you saw um, the United States increasing as a rising power, you saw the British Empire, you saw what France was up to. These were these were great powers who became competitors in a way that is increasingly the case in the world we now find ourselves in. I think a little bit about coming back to decision-making on the ground, or maybe at the strategic level uh, as well. And you mentioned talking about uh, ambiguity and uncertainty, and particularly, um, obviously, there's a lot of that in military environments, but there is in, in business environments as well. My question really is about how you how you deal with that ambiguity and uncertainty at the strategic decision making level. Do you have a you know, a, a grading system for for how, how sure you are on the information, or you know how, how you kind of communicate with that communicate that uncertainty and ambiguity in those decision making forums? Yes, I mean, I think. I think I've explained how we try and deal with that at the tactical level. Um, I yeah. think at the strategic level, um, one first of all needs to realise that uh, the more senior you become, the less powerful you become, and the less likely that your decisions will be implemented easily. And I think that strategic leaders, leaders at the strategic level, um, need to understand that if they're going to make something happen, uh, they have to invest a significant amount of time in shaping the environment for that decision to be received. Uh, Because if they don't do that, the complexity of the organisation at the level at which they're operating will undoubtedly divide into tribal groupings who all have their own stakes and own personal interests in all of this. And one will discover that the decision never really gets executed. So I think that's a really important thing for strategic leaders to understand ab initio. <clears throat> is you're going to have to shape the environment for the decision to be received. I think the next thing you then need to realise is that you are going to have to work hard to make sure that the rationale behind the decision is understood at every level in your organisation. And you'll do that partly, I think, by um, getting advocates who are loyal and supportive of what you're trying to achieve. But you're also going to do it by constant communication constantly explaining what you're trying to achieve and constantly explaining why there is advantage to the organisation in achieving that effect. And so much of 
the execution of strategy these days is about storytelling, uh, particularly given the pervasiveness of information. I think you then need to recognise, given that the world is increasingly dynamic and complex, and that's going to get even worse as the pace of change gets faster and faster and faster, which is what we're finding with technology, isn't it? That, of course, your plan may not survive contact with the rubber hitting the road. And the reality of that, therefore, is that you've got to accept that you need to have the humility to listen to a range of different people, to accept challenge, and to acknowledge that you may have to change the plan. Um, And you've got to become inherently adaptable. Uh, And adaptability is probably the key criteria to success these days, recognising that adaptability only comes from leaders who are prepared to be humble enough to listen to what's going on around them and to adapt that plan when they realise that it needs adaptation. Hearing you speak about narratives, something that is incredibly interesting because we think about narratives a lot in investment and um, and actually often from the other other angle, which is we're very cautious about narratives um, in, in driving an investment case because they can be very powerful, as, as, as you've just discussed. So how do you, how do you perhaps how to think about that but also when when you're when you're receiving feedback or receiving new information which perhaps isn't in is sort of saying that your current strategy isn't working um how you tread the line between putting that information to one side or, or trying to to measure the efficacy of that information uh, to, to update your plan you just you just spoke about being being very flexible and being adaptable but we live in a very, very noisy world. And if we were if we react to every piece of noise, we can end up with no strategy at all. So how do you how do you sort of try and dismiss the noise but but uh but, but execute based on the the information that you're receiving from the ground? Yes, I, I um there was a there was a great quote um to your point by General Omar Bradley, who was the first chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff back in the 1950s, who said, be guided by the stars and not by the lights of every passing ship. So there is an importance, of course, to setting a consistent strategy over a decent period of time and then adhering to it. But um, I think that we're not always terribly good at um, working out what the indicators are to progress and what the measurement of performance is. So I think it's quite important that you do that. The next thing that's really important, and we talk a lot about this in the military, is having some really clear, what we call commander's critical information requirements. So if you are going to execute a plan, there will be a series of quite important um, factors that will need to fall into place for the plan to be successful. And having the right set of questions to make sure that you are always keeping an eye on those factors is something you want to do deliberately and in a determined way before you set off on it. Because that, I think, will help you maintain that course by the stars and not by the lights of every passing ship. We've been thinking a lot about mistakes, because, of course, in the investment world, we are prone to make mistakes all the time. So we were wondering, how do you go about thinking and learning the right lessons from the mistakes that you you, you might have made in the past or mistakes that you've seen from a historical perspective? And how do you think about psychological safety? I mean, I think we in the military 
do have one big advantage over many other professions, and that is that if we're not actually operating, we're probably training. And of course, the great thing about training is that you can design it in such a way that you genuinely find people out and enable them to make mistakes. And many of the best lessons that I've learned have been learned through making mistakes when I've been training. And I think that's a, a really helpful advantage that we, the military, have over other professions. Because there's no doubt about it, that by making mistakes, you're far more likely to learn lessons from it. Now, there's an importance about the distinction between learning a lesson and then applying the learning, which, of course, one has to keep an eye on. I think the second thing that's related to that, in a way, is that we do have a culture of trying to celebrate failure. Because if you celebrate failure, and I don't think that's different in, I think all worlds could perhaps benefit from this, then I think actually you'll help people take some risk. And in the world I've described, we need people to take risk. Now, not, you know, ill-considered risk or reckless risk, but sensibly judged risk. And of course, it won't always come off. And what leaders need to be doing is having the confidence to be able to take account of when somebody has taken a very sensible, considered risk and have failed, and then celebrate that failure. Because I think in doing that, that will encourage people actually to use their initiative and potentially seize the fleeting opportunities that might make the difference between profitability and loss. So I think that's an important ingredient in it. So much of this, though, is about culture, and it's about the culture that a leader sets within his or her organization. Because ultimately, if you are on top of what's going on in your um, organization, you know the people who are working for you properly. So you are a downwardly looking leader rather than one who's forever worrying about what your boss might think. Then I think you will be able to create the culture in which you can celebrate failure on the basis of enabling people to take informed judgments about risk. General, you reached the highest ranking position in the military. How did you encourage people that were in the lower ranks to challenge people in the higher ranks? Um, I mean, first of all, you reach the top of the military probably by being the last man standing, <laughs> but putting that smartly <laughs> to one side. I think it goes back to what I was just saying earlier in the conversation about the um, having the humility, but certainly having the culture of asking people, of listening to people, and then giving them the opportunity to tell you what they really think. It's also about getting out and about. Uh, you know, if you're wedded to your desk, you're not actually going to learn a great deal. Um, and I think you have to encourage people to get out and about and talk to people at every level. Um, and I think it's that. It's it's about communication. And it's about trying to get the people who are working for you to realize that you you want to listen to them. And that in listening to them, you might take note of what they've told you. So I think there's a, there's a sort of two-way process there, um, which is fundamental. And again, it comes back to, I think, you know, we're fortunate in the military in that we do fundamentally believe in um, giving people the opportunity to um, to prevail and the opportunity to to speak out. And we encourage challenge. And I think when you assemble a team, you know, you want to make sure that you don't assemble a team, which becomes, as I suspect Mr. Putin's discovered, an echo chamber of sycophants. You know, you want people who are prepared to speak truth to power. And you need to be thinking about them when you bring your team together. Because you want some people who will be disruptive. Because if you don't, you'll end up being guilty of groupthink. And we all know where that leads to. It'll be a Kodak moment. 
We cannot pass on the opportunity of asking you about the current conflict and Russian invasion of Ukraine. And you just made a reference to Putin. We asked Montefiore during our conversation who had taken the biggest gamble, historical gamble in the past. And he mentioned Hitler's decision to invade Russia. And I need to ask you, is Putin the biggest gambler? Well, I think that will probably be a question for history, which means you have to wind the clock forward a few years because, of course, you know, the jury is still out on who is going to be able to declare victory uh, in this war that we're watching. And I think that that will take time to play out. So I don't know. I mean, I think Putin is undoubtedly an opportunist. And we saw that in his invasion of Georgia. We saw that in his invasion of Crimea. We saw that in the way that he um, encouraged renegades to start the war in the eastern Donbass in 2014 as well. Um, so, no, he's an opportunist. Whether he's a gambler, I think it's too early to say, because it may well be that he finds himself in a position where he can declare victory. And then history, I suspect, will judge him differently. I think um, it's always dangerous, as history has shown, to invade Russia. Napoleon discovered that and Hitler discovered that. And yes, they probably did take a gamble and history is able to look back and judge it as a gamble. Let's see what um, the historians say in 10 or 15 or 20 years of what we see playing out in Eastern Europe at the moment. From a geopolitical perspective, how are you reading the world today? We always make the point that people tend to think about this period of time as being very uncertain, but uncertainty never varies. It's always constant. It's just that our perception about uncertainty is the one that changes. So how, how are you thinking about the world at the moment with the rise of China and the challenge to the US, the rise of China and the challenges that it's posting to the other Asian countries, Russia and Ukraine, Pakistan and India? I am... Um I think there are sort of three themes, really, which probably explain why we are in this peculiar moment of ever-increasing instability. I think the first theme, which we touched on earlier in the conversation, is that we are now in a world that is multipolar, where the great powers and their allies and clients are competing for power. And I think Ukraine has brought this very sharply into focus because what we're seeing now is, I think, the world breaking down into three distinct groupings. A grouping that is pro-Western, a grouping that is anti-Western, and then, of course, a group of non-aligned. And the anti-West group, which is really the axis between China and Russia, and they're really only held together probably by their dislike of the West and the United States of America. That group, perhaps with Venezuela, Nicaragua, Iran, those sorts of countries in it is, is, is obvious. The non-aligned bit, I think, is also really interesting because these are countries like India, Brazil, Mexico, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, who can undoubtedly don't want to be obliged to make a choice between pro-West and anti-West for all sorts of reasons. Not least, they can see great advantage in still being part of a globalized world, whereas the anti-West grouping and the pro-West grouping are probably going to be in more of a regionalized world. And the opportunities that will come with the former 
are going to be greater than the latter. So I think that's the first um, phenomenon we're watching. The second phenomenon, I think, is that the sort of rules-based order, the, the, the global multilateral system, you know, that we've all grown up with and which began to be put in place from the late 1940s onwards, is arguably no longer fit for purpose. And when you think that the last truly global gathering that achieved something was arguably the G20 summit in London in 2010 to get after the global financial crisis. You can sort of see what I mean, because even during COVID, we didn't have any sense of global unanimity about what the answer was and how we should try to solve it. So I think that is a really important factor in this, you know, that that rules-based order. Um, and, you know, China wants more of a say. Uh, and China would, doesn't necessarily believe that the rules-based order is ideal for China's future, even though China has actually profited hugely from the framework that was put in place post the 1940s. And then I think the third phenomenon we're seeing is the very rapid pace of te technological change and the pervasiveness of information and data. And what that has done and is doing you know, exponentially is changing the character of politics and also the character of warfare. And it provides the anti-West group with new tools, tactics, and techniques to be able to undermine our way of life. Uh, and that is a, a, a feature of instability. So I think those are the, the themes that I sort of focus on when I think about the way in which the world is now headed. And I don't necessarily see an answer to the first two phenomenon, or for that matter, probably to the third. Something that has a lot of people's attention at the moment is China's intention to maybe potentially invade Taiwan. Russell Napier, who was also a guest on this podcast, has made the point that invading an island, as the UK has probably experienced, is something very, very difficult to do to the advantage of the island. Do you see that as a real threat? And what could be done to stop it? Um, I don't think it's an imminent threat for a number of reasons. I think first and foremost, I think that China will have learned a number of lessons from the Western response to Putin's invasion of Ukraine in relation to the global economy and sanctions and everything associated with um, your sort of financial reserves held overseas. So I think they learned some powerful lessons about that. Secondly, I think they will be entirely cognizant of the significant risk associated with invading Taiwan. From a military perspective, it's an extraordinarily difficult operation. And if the Taiwanese were to fight, I think it would be very risky for China to try and do this. And indeed, if you look at the way the United States planned for taking back the Indo-Pacific from the Japanese in 1943-44, they looked at Taiwan and instead chose to take Okinawa. And Okinawa was a very bloody and difficult fight. But it's an indication of, therefore, how much harder Taiwan perhaps would have been. So I think from a military perspective, it's pretty clear. And then I think the third observation I'd make is that, you know, China studies Sun Tzu. Um, and Sun Tzu's observation has always been that the supreme art of strategy is to subdue your opponent without fighting. And given what I've just been saying about the new tools, tactics, and techniques that are available, political warfare is right at the heart of the Chinese approach to achieving effect. So I think 
what we're more likely to see in the case of Taiwan over the next three or four years is an upsurge of political warfare uh, and a much more sophisticated way of prevailing without actually physically going to war. And I think that's what we should be alert to. Um, and that would be a, a more, a lot much less risky way for for China to go. China can't afford to lose lots of human beings. Uh, I mean, they've got real demographic challenges. You know, when you think that the working age population is going to shrink by 10% between now and 2035, and by nearly 30% by 2050, they do not need a war in which lots of people die. They don't have the luxury of lots of human beings to be able to fight that sort of war. So I think there are all sorts of important reasons why it would be unlikely for China to do a military invasion of Taiwan in the next few years. But the demographic issue also applies to Russia, right? Yes, it does. I mean, the, the Russian population has similar similar issues. General Sonic Carter, thank you so much for your time today. That's been a fascinating conversation. Before we let you go, we ask all our guests a signature question. And that's, uh, uh, could you give us a book recommendation, a podcast recommendation, an article recommendation, something that you've um, uh, kind of consumed uh, recently or, or in the past that, that you'd love to, to pass on to our listeners? Yes, I think the, the best book I've read almost in the last 10 years is a little short novel written by somebody called Claire Keegan called Small Things Like These. And she's an Irish writer and she won the biggest Irish literary prize last year for this book. And what she does is to get into the question of the Magdalene laundries, which you'll notice was a very interesting uh, political question in relation to the Catholic Church in Ireland and perhaps the Catholic Church more broadly. But it's a it's a really in interesting story because it's about uh, somebody having an epiphany in relation to this. And it's incredibly well written. It's short, but she doesn't waste a, a single word. And it's one of those books that once you've finished it, you will almost certainly go back and reread it because so much of what she says is so true and is so beautifully written. Thank you. Well, um, we'll check it out and we'll uh, link to it in the show notes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.